2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul writes these words. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in union with Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And evil persons and imposters will keep on going from bad to worse, deceiving others and being deceived themselves. But as for you, continue in the truths that you were taught and firmly believe. You know who your teachers were. And you remember that ever since you were a child, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Would you read these last two verses with me? All Scripture is breathed by God and is useful for teaching the truth, rebuking error, correcting faults, and giving instruction for right living, so that the person who serves God may be fully qualified and equipped to do every kind of good deed. Some of us here this morning are old enough to remember using maps when we went on vacation. You remember that? You don't want to admit it, but we did. And we'd have these maps, which were wonderful for finding your way around if you were fast enough, but they were also the source of many a contention. Because the person driving who was usually the husband or dad would be wanting to know where the next turnoff was, and the poor navigator in the passenger seat, which was usually mom, had this map open, usually so large it would cover the windshield. They usually had it upside down. We're trying to get their bearings and trying to relay the information to the driver before you missed the turn. Because back then, you didn't have this nice little voice that said, recalculating, recalculating. You just have this voice that said, you missed it again. And so, you know, it, it was no small feat, you know, unfurling those maps. But, you know, the greater challenge was putting them back together. Remember those? Well, today we have GPSs. In fact, I have two. I have one whose name is Siri, and of course, that's on my phone. I have another one, nobody knew this until this morning, but I have another uh, GPS in my car uh, that I call Linda. Now, I don't think Linda likes me a whole, you thought I was going to say Vanessa, right? No, it's actually in, built into the car. And I don't think Linda likes me a whole lot because I have come to the occasional street where the street isn't there. Or half a street isn't there. We've updated ours, and, and the top of our street still is not on the GPS in the car. And, and, uh, you know, and then you're driving along, and you hear that recalculating and recalculating. So there came a point in time in my life, in my relationship, that I had to make a decision that I was not going to listen to Linda anymore. And so if given the option, and if I get reception, I will always try to listen to Siri. We all have to make that choice in our life. We all have many voices coming to us that all claim to know the way and the truth. We have to decide which ones we are going to listen to and which ones we are going to ignore. And I want to ask you this morning to seriously consider this question. What authority are you following in your life? What authority is telling you or are you receiving information from what you should do in a given situation, how you think, how you should live, how you should relate, how you minister, whatever it may be, what voice has an authority in your life to show you where you need to go? Now, there are a lot of people both inside the church and outside the church whose final authority is their own intellect. It's what they understand, and so they just use what we call common sense or what they say is common sense, and, uh, and they make decisions based on that. Other people are kind of more on the emotional side. They, they, they make decisions sometimes rashly, sometimes quickly, because they tend to be governed by their feelings, what I'm feeling at the moment. And a lot of times there's an intensity with that, and they make decisions too, sometimes poorly. Uh, some people tend to make the decisions based on trends, uh, whatever seems to be normal in culture, whatever seems to be the, the popular opinion on a certain way of living or thinking or relating, then that's kind of what they do. And of course, other people we may lean upon a friend 
or a counselor. So again, I want to ask you, who or what is the authority in your life? Now, I, I want to suggest to you this morning, and I don't say this glibly as we unpack it this morning, but I really want to encourage you this morning to seriously consider, as we've been sharing these last few weeks, that you resolve to live a God-directed life. In other words, in doing that, you have made a conscious decision that God is going to be the authority in my life. What he says, what he reveals to me is going to be the authority. Now, we've been talking a lot these last weeks about reading the Bible. In fact, last week, we really challenged you to begin to read the Word of God if you don't already. We showed you some Bible plans you can follow, things you can do. You can go back and listen to that if you like. But the challenge is to be in the Word of God every single day. Give God an opportunity every day to speak to you in some way. And as you do that, I want to encourage you to kind of embrace this model for 2017. And the motto is this, shoot for seven, hit five. Will you say that with me? Shoot for seven, hit five. What I mean by that is determine that you're going to read the Word of God every day, whether it's the three chapters that get you through the Bible in one year, whether it's a chapter, a few verses, whatever, but every single day you're going to consciously open the Scriptures and take time to read the Word of God. You're going to try to do that seven times a week. If you only hit five, I want to encourage you to be encouraged because you know what? That's five times more than most Christians, okay? So just think about that for a moment. Shoot for seven, but don't let the devil discourage you if you don't make all seven. Shoot for seven, hit five, be happy. Why do we strongly encourage us to be in the Word of God? Well, very simply, we need to understand that as we go through life each day, each week, we need, just like a map, we need a point of reference that we can go to to make sure that we're still on track, that we're thinking right, relating right, making right decisions, and that God has an opportunity to check our course through the day if he needs to. Because you see, what I've found over the years is that faith is not this mystical thing. Faith is something that we exercise every single day. Uh, for those of us who may take a pill, take some medication, does anybody really understand what you're swallowing? When the doctor writes a subscription, I may know what it's called if I can pronounce it. I have no idea what is in that. And yet I'm putting it in my mouth, I am swallowing it and trusting it doesn't kill me, that it does what it said it's going to do. What am I doing? I'm, I'm taking a step of faith. It's an act of faith. And so whatever authority you follow, whether it's yourself, whether it's God, secular trends, whatever, please understand, whatever authority basically is the decision-maker in your life, it is equally an act of faith. Faith is not just something in the house of God or relationship with God. You exercise faith in whatever you place your trust in. Here's a scripture for you from James chapter 1. Humbly accept the word that God plants in your heart because it is able to save you. Humbly accept it. That is, receive it, acknowledge it. God has given us his word to, number one, guard us against poor decisions, but also to open up to us new things that he wants to show us and he wants to grow in us. Paul said that all scripture is breathed by God. What does that mean? It literally means this. We have the next, next point here. Every verse in the Bible is God-given, and every verse is made alive by him. That's what it means. Will you say that with me? Every verse in the Bible is God-given and made alive by him. That's what it means for the word of God to be God-breathed. Not just breathed in the sense that God gave it to men to record, but it's full of life for those who allow it to be planted in their heart, it begins to grow. 
That's why, for example, the Bible is called God's Word. Think about that. Uh, Paul, uh, Peter wrote in his book, he said, no part of the holy writings came, along, came long ago because of what man wanted to write. But holy men who belonged to God spoke what the Holy Spirit told them. Okay, we don't have the Bible because there were some religious men who had some ideas about God. It's the other way around. We have the Bible because there is a God who wants us to know him and reveals himself to us and dictated that to men uh, who wrote the scriptures. They didn't always know it was God talking to them. They wrote, but we know now as we see the word of God that God dictated that and God says as much himself. Think about this for a moment. The Bible that you have in your hands or on your phone, wherever it may be, from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, do you realize the Bible was written over a period of 1,600 years? Okay, different books of the Bible completed at different times, but over a course of 1,600 years. Written by 40 different people who didn't know each other, had probably never seen each other, most of them, had never communicated. Why? Because they lived over a course of 1,600 years. They came from three different continents, and they wrote it in three different languages. And yet the amazing thing about your Bible is with all that possible variance, it has one central theme. The redemption of mankind. Bringing mankind back to God in a relationship through the Savior who we know to be Jesus Christ. The question is this. How did they all get the same story? How do you get this same thread through all these books, all these authors down through the centuries who haven't even read each other's writings? Well, the scripture says how that happened. You see, if you, write, if you read the Quran, what you discover with the Quran is it's written by one person. Who? Muhammad. If you, write, you read the writings of Confucius, they're written by Confucius, okay? If you read the writings of Buddha, they're written by Okay, so you should have this uniformity. In fact, you, if you ever read some of the books, you don't really have a lot of uniformity sometimes, but you should have a uniformity at least in those books. Why? Because they're written by the same person. Or what Peter says, they're an expression of what one man wanted to say. So there should be some continuity there. But when you come to the Bible, the Bible is written over a period of 1,600 years by 40 different authors who were poets, they were kings, they were princes, they were uh, disciples, they were fishermen, they were doctors and lawyers, all different walks of life. All of these people over that period of time came up with the same theme. How in the world do they do that? The Bible says men who belong to God wrote what God told them to write. It's a miraculous book. In fact, in Luke 24, Jesus is walking with two men along a road to Emmaus after his resurrection, and in verse 27 of, 20, of chapter 24, Luke says this, that beginning with Moses, that is the first five books of the Old Testament, and then all the prophets, that is going through the rest of the Old Testament, Jesus explained to him what the scriptures said concerning himself. Now, most people think when it comes to the Bible that the New Testament is about Jesus and the Old Testament is about Israel. Wrong. When Jesus spoke to these men on the road to Emmaus, there was no such thing as the New Testament. What did Jesus do? He went to the scriptures that were in existence, what we call the Old Testament, and beginning from the beginning right through, Jesus showed them what the Word of God said concerning him. 
from what we call the Old Testament Scriptures. That's why Paul said to Timothy that all Scripture, every book, every symbol, every analogy, every prophecy, all Scripture is able to point you to God through a relationship with the Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he says, those same Scriptures that point you to God, they are able to bring you into a life of fruitfulness, of abundance, where you are qualified and equipped to do every kind of good deed. Now, here's a question, and I want you to really think about this before you answer, because you're not supposed to lie in church. Who honestly believes that if God is who he says he is, then everything that he has written in his word ought to be accepted as fact, whether we understand it or not. I see a couple brave souls. Is this a trick question? <laughs> no, no. Just, does that make sense? If God is who he says he is, if the Bible is his written word to us, does it make sense? If he's the author, everything he says in his word, every promise, everything he asks of us ought to be accepted as fact whether we understand it or not. Think about this. We live in the natural realm. We live in a realm that by and large is dictated to, dominated by our natural senses. What we see, what we taste, what we hear, what we experience, whatever the case may be. Have you ever thought of this? That every being that lives in the spirit realm, every angel, even every demon, every spiritual creature in heaven that there seems to be dozens and not hundreds that are listed, Every single being in the realm of the Spirit is absolutely convinced that when God speaks, it is true. That whatever God says is going to happen, it's going to happen. Whatever God promises, He is going to do. Whatever provision He has made, it happens. Does that make sense? Every being in the spiritual realm is completely convinced of that. In fact, James goes so far to say, you say you believe in God, <laughs> you're doing well. You know what? The devil believes God, and what does he do? He trembles. In other words, when the word of God comes to him, he doesn't blow it off. He shakes because he understands the authority of the word of God. There's a different response in the realm of the spirit and in the natural realm, though there should not be for those who are the people of God. When an angel, for example, would come to earth and give a message from God to a person, or when Jesus came and he spoke the word of God or ministered according to the authority of God's word, there was never a doubt in their minds that what God said was going to happen. Was there? Never any question. In fact, time and again, Jesus would reprimand his disciples. Even after they had seen miracles, even after God had used them to do miracles, something else would come up and all of a sudden they start to doubt again or not understand. And time and again, you'd hear Jesus say something like this. You're so dull of thinking, or your unbelief. How long do I have to tarry with you guys? When are you finally going to get it? We can have that struggle too. And why is that? I believe it's essentially because there's two kinds of faith, or at least two things that we pass as faith. There's what we might call man's faith, and there's also God's faith. I would suggest to you that a lot of what we consider faith in the modern church today is little more than a theology, a man-made theology, you might say, based on the word, but it's a theology that accommodates unbelief. 
We say, what's your faith, what you believe? And what you'll discover right away if we begin to talk about many things is that there are certain things we believe in God's word. There's certain things we don't. Oh, we believe certain things happen, but we don't believe certain things can happen through us. Or that he's really serious about certain things. And that's why among all different denominations, you have many different doctrines or many different um, dogmatic things in each field. Because one denomination will say, well, we really embrace this, we don't embrace that, or vice versa. And so a lot of what we call faith in our modern day church, I believe, is really a theology that accommodates unbelief. And the reason is because we always have to process things. When God speaks to us, when his word comes to us, if we're honest... A lot of us, our first inclination is to process it. What does that mean? We take what God says, and if it makes sense, we'll do it. Or if I can get my mind around it, I'll do it, maybe. Or if it doesn't inconvenience me, am I off track here? Or if it's not asking too much of me, or if God understands my situation, then I will probably try to do it. But you see, we have to process everything. And so what we do in our natural mind is we try to get enough information about what it is we feel God is saying to us. We try to, you know, glean from our experience, glean from what others are saying, whatever it may be. And if finally our unbelief is outweighed by belief, then we do it. Does that make sense? If our unbelief is not outweighed by belief, then we kind of create a theology that makes us comfortable in our unbelief. The Bible says in Psalm 33, God's word is truth, and everything he does is right. Faith in its purest form does not have a process. I want to think that to sink in for a minute. Faith in its purest form does not have a process. What I mean by that is faith weighs out anything in the light of God's word, and God's word always wins. God's word is always believed. God's word is always submitted to. God's word is always contended for. Whether or not you see it right now, whether or not you understand it, whether or not you can figure it all out. Now, I'm not talking about theological formulas of easy believism that heaps condemnation on people if things aren't working out. But the word of God is alive, and the word of God that's planted in your heart, if you receive it, it is able to save you. It is able to deliver. It is able to heal. It is able to change your mind. It is able to change the way you behave, the way you think, the choices you make, how you relate. The word of God is able to set you free and keep you free. If you honestly believe what God says and what he has revealed. God's word and God's word alone is what should be our scale that determines what is true and what is false. If we are going to be qualified and equipped, as Paul says, to do every kind of good deed, we have to resign ourselves to this one reality. If God said it, it's fact. No explanation is necessary. I don't have to understand it. I don't have to figure it out. If I do or I don't, that's beside the point. If I know what God is saying to me, I need to step out and act on it. You may be called a fool by others. You may be, even those who care about you say, well, you know, here's the rational reason why you shouldn't. But if God has given you his word and spoken and wants to prove his word to you, you need to start stepping out. Smith Wigglesworth was a wonderful evangelist in the early 1900s. He was born in the mid-1800s. Uh, he, he, he was illiterate, couldn't read until he was an adult. Born into a working class family, born into poverty. 
He was a man who, as an adult who learned to read by reading the Bible. Now, he was a Christian growing up, but he read by reading the Bible. And in fact, he read the Bible so much, he just devoured the Word of God as he learned to read, so much so that he had this passionate love for God and a love for souls, love to see people come to Christ. But as he got into the Word of God, he also saw unmistakably that the supernatural exists, that miracles are real. And he believed that and ministered in that in a day when miracles were very rare, if existent at all. I want to read you a few quotes from some of his different writings on different topics that I hope will kind of stir your faith a little bit this morning. Here's some things that Smith said. On the subject of faith, he said this, there is nothing impossible with God. All the impossibility is with us. When we measure God by the limitations of our unbelief. Does that make sense? How about in the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit reveals, unfolds, takes the things of Christ, and shows them to us, and prepares us to be more than a match for satanic forces. True story, reading his biography. One night, in the middle of the night, he heard this ruckus going on downstairs. Thought it was a burglar or something. He walks downstairs, the biographer says, into his front room. It is dark, pitch black, looks into the corner, and the devil is sitting in the corner. He turns to the devil and says, oh, it's only you. I'm going back to bed. That was just the truth he walked in. Here's the something he said about doubt. The blood of Jesus Christ and his mighty name are an antidote to all the subtle seeds of unbelief that Satan would sow in your mind. How about on the bigness of God? There is nothing small about our God. And when we understand God, we will find out that there ought not to be anything small about us. We must have an enlargement of our conception of God. Then we will know that we have come to a place where all things are possible. For our God is an omnipotent God for impossible situations or positions. Here's a couple more. Never listen to human plans. God can work mightily when you persist, persist in believing him in spite of discouragement from the human standpoint. I am moved by what I believe. And I know this, no man looks at the circumstances if he believes. Doesn't that kind of encourage you? You know, it had the power to back it up. In fact, when he died, he said, my one regret is that people look too much at me, not at Jesus. Because that's just human tendency. You know, what's your secret? What's your formula? And he said this, people always want to know, he said, he said, Smith, how much do you read the Bible? I think I've shared this before. And he says, I always tell them the truth. About how much, how much do you pray was the question. He said, I prayed for about 15 minutes. And I said, how's that? Well, he said, I don't go more than 15 minutes without praying again. I just walk in communion with God. I just fellowship with him, and I love his word. Okay, where are we? Spiritual hunger. No. Yes? Okay. We got that up. There we go. The secret of spiritual success is a hunger that what? Persists. Not occasionally. It persists. It is an awful condition to be satisfied with one's spiritual attainments. God was and is looking for hungry, thirsty people. Two more. This one's on reading the Word. It is as we feed on the Word and meditate on the message it contains that the Spirit of God can vitalize that which we have received and bring forth through us the Word of knowledge that will be as full of power and life as when He, the Spirit of God, moved upon holy men of old and gave them these inspired scriptures. That is true. 
If the word of God is from God, if it is alive and full of power, the word of God can be as exciting to you as it was to those who wrote it down 1,000 or 2,000 years ago. Final one on God's strength. You must come to see how wonderful you are in God and how helpless you are in yourself. Let that sink in. To understand how wonderful you are as a child of God, but how desperately naked and poor you are just in yourself. Don't blow off what God has breathed. Why is there such a gap between what the Word of God tells us, what Jesus said, what the Scriptures say, and what we often see actually being lived out in the body of Christ that is called to impact a world that doesn't know Christ, a body of light that is called to shine in the darkness, a body of freedom and hope and peace that moves and lives among bondage and darkness and brokenness and hopelessness. Why do we see such a variance between the two? Why do we see such a variance between the Lord's revealed will of what he says to his people and what actually gets lived out in our lives? I don't say this in condemnation because it's, it's a struggle that we all share from time to time. I believe the answer is found, or one of the answers is found in Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul writes these words. He said, the carnal mind sees no further than natural things. But the spiritual mind reaches out after the things of the Spirit. Can you picture that? The spiritual mind longs for, reaches out for what is of God. The realm where everything God says is reality. The former, that is the carnal, means death, darkness, decay. The latter means life and inner peace. And this is only to be expected. Read these last two lines with me. For the carnal mind is inevitably opposed to the purpose of God and neither can nor will follow his ways for living. The carnal mind neither can nor will follow anything pertaining to God's purpose and God's ways. The Bible says essentially that we have two minds. We have a carnal mind. Our carnal mind is that which we were born with when we were born into sin. Our carnal mind, our natural mind, is the mind that operates in the natural realm, in temporal things. The carnal mind is that thought process that you have that handles things according to what you see with the natural eye, what you hear, what you touch, what you smell, how you feel. You see, the carnal mind is ruled at the level of the soul. It, it, it's, it's concerned about its will. It's concerned about its feelings. It's concerned about what it can understand, what it can process. That is your carnal mind. But when you are born again, when you are made a brand new creation in Jesus Christ, your spirit comes alive and you have a spiritual mind that you have available to you. Or what Paul talks about as the mind of Christ or the thoughts of Christ. That's what Paul says in Corinthians. Look at this scripture. The unspiritual man simply cannot accept the matters which the Spirit deals with. They just don't make sense to him. For after all, you must be spiritual to see spiritual things. The spiritual man, on the other hand, has an insight into the meaning of everything, though his insight may baffle the man of the world. Read this last line. Incredible as it may sound, we who are spiritual have the very thoughts of Christ. Paul says, listen, this is mind-blowing, but if you are in Christ, you have the mind of Christ. So the question is, if I have the mind of Christ, 
if I have the thoughts of Christ available to, me, available to me in every situation, then why do I not sometimes think like Christ? Why do I not act like Christ? Why do I not, if Jesus said, greater things will you do than I have done, why do I not do those things as a Christian if I truly have the mind of Christ, the thoughts of Christ? I believe it's because just as I had to choose between two GPSs, and I had to decide I'm going to stop listening to Linda because Siri is telling the truth and gets me where I want to go. In the same way, I have to make the conscious decision which mind I'm going to listen to is going to rule my life, which mind is going to dominate my thoughts and have its way, which mind is going to win the argument. Is it going to be my carnal mind that is based in the natural realm? Is it going to be the spiritual mind that reaches for the things of the Spirit? that reaches for the Word of God, the spiritual mind that when God speaks to me, I don't allow the carnal mind to shut it down, but the spiritual mind says, thank you, Lord. Yes, that's true. Yes, I have options. This is the Word of God to me. And the spiritual mind reaches for that truth and embraces it and begins to receive the Word that God has planted. The problem is, if I'm always living with two minds, I'm always confused. And I, I promise you this, if you allow the two minds to operate at the same time and give place to the carnal mind, the carnal mind will always shut down the spiritual mind. You will never experience what the Lord has for you. James says it must in chapter 1. James said this. He talks about that double-mindedness or doubting. Such doubters are thinking two different things at the same time. They cannot decide about anything they do. They should not think they will receive anything from the Lord. You see, the carnal mind is comfortable in the natural realm. And there's some things that the carnal mind does that's fine. The carnal mind, for example, will show you how to drive your car. Uh, the carnal mind will, uh, you know, when you're cooking your meal, your carnal mind is working. You know, this morning when you get up, your carnal mind can pick out the clothes you're going to wear. Okay? Some of you probably should have prayed about it, but you didn't. Okay? But your carnal mind, you know, it's not a big deal. Okay? You just, you know, there's perfunctory type things that we do through the course of the day that we can do and the carnal mind can get us through that. But please understand this. Your carnal mind is absolutely of no use for the things of God. Absolutely. Not only is it no use for the things of God, it opposes everything that is of God. It's no use for spiritual things. Your carnal mind will never challenge you to believe the word of God to you. Your carnal mind will never be open to being conformed to the person of Jesus Christ and being just like him. Your carnal mind has no power to overcome your selfishness and your sensual desires. Your carnal mind has no power to operate in spiritual warfare. Your carnal mind will never minister anything of the Spirit of God to other people. The carnal mind and the spiritual mind, they do not mix together. And that's what James is talking about, this double-mindedness. And this is why so many Christians just get shut down and we settle for this theology of impotence, this theology that just lacks the presence and power and the testimony of God at work in our life because our carnal mind has convinced us that it doesn't work. It works for somebody else. It works for the more spiritually inclined, but it doesn't really work for me. It's just not God's will for me. In fact, let me ask you this. How many of you, have ever stepped out in faith to do what God is saying for you to do. Now, it could be ministry. 
It could be the way that you respond to your spouse. If you've got some friction going on, the way that you're thinking, what you're going to do, what you're going to say, whatever it may be. But you know God is saying something to you, and you know it's truth. And the moment that truth comes into your heart, the moment God implants that word into your heart, I promise you, there is another voice that rises up right away, and it says this, that doesn't make sense. That's not going to happen. What about me? What about my feelings? What about my needs? Yeah, yeah, you know, how about what they did to me? You ever have those thoughts? Or, or maybe God calls you to step out in ministry, and what's the first thought? Uh, what if God doesn't come through? What if I'm embarrassed? What if I fail? You know, what if I talk to that person at the office that's just been on my heart, and they, and they, and they, and they shut me down, or they reject me? What, what if, what if, what if? Have you had those thoughts? What if? That is your carnal mind because your spirit knows what God is calling you to do and he knows the wonderful things he has on the other end. We have to learn how to put the carnal mind in its place because, friends, I promise you, the vast majority of our failures and our frustrations that we experience as believers boils down to this. We are trying to serve God in the power of our carnal mind. We are trying to do spiritual things or be spiritual people but always within the realm of what we understand or what we are comfortable with. You're never going to be comfortable to step out of a boat in the middle of the storm when Jesus says, come on. Even though he's standing there on water defying the impossible, you're still rationally not going to be comfortable doing that. That's why Peter is one of my biggest heroes, even though he went through the water eventually. At least he got out of the boat. Paul does say this in Romans 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, when we read that scripture, we typically think of it this way. Well, what God is saying is that if I can just get enough scripture in me, if I can know the word, meditate enough on the word, eventually I can reprogram that carnal mind and I can bring that carnal mind under control to what God wants to do. That is not what it means. Why? Because that contradicts what God has already said. What did he say? He said it's impossible. Listen to this. We read the verse earlier. The carnal mind neither can nor will follow God's ways. Okay, let that sink in for a second because that's, that's really encouraging. The carnal mind neither can nor will follow God's ways. And that is encouraging because you know what? You can finally give up trying to make it happen because it's not going to happen. The, the carnal mind neither desires nor has the power to do what God's called to do. It is absolutely an impossibility. It is not going to change. And that is liberating when you stop doing that. A more literal translation of Romans 12 says this. Do not be shaped by this world. Instead, read it with me, be changed within by a new way of thinking. A new way of thinking. In other words, the beginning point for every thought, the beginning point for every action, every reaction, the beginning point for anything that you need to step out and do is not your natural thinking. That's not the beginning point anymore if you're going to walk in the Spirit, if you're going to do those things that please God, experience the abundant life that Jesus promised. That can't be your beginning point. If your beginning point is always what makes sense, what makes you feel good, your natural reaction, then it's never going to happen. The beginning point, Paul is saying, has to be what God has breathed, what holds life, 
He says the spiritual mind reaches out after the things of the Spirit. Some of us here this morning, we have been struggling with the same thing year after year for years. We've got so discouraged, so despondent. Again, we've either created a theology where, you know, I'm sure God's okay with it because, or I've just given up, even though I'm sure God's not okay, I've given up. But you know why we battle with it year after year? You know why we never find freedom? Is because we are always fighting on the devil's turf. We are always fighting in his realm where we don't have a chance. We are always coming against the devil with our reason, with our feelings. We are always accepting what he says, even though we don't realize it. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did, remember? Adam and Eve are in the garden. Perfect. No sin. They still have free will, but there's no sin at the present time. God says, all this is yours, acres and acres. Who knows how big the Garden of Eden was? It's all yours. Just don't eat from this one tree. So what happens? The devil comes to them and says this. He appeals to two things. First of all, he appeals to their natural mind to try to dislodge God's word from their thinking process. How does he do that? Did God really say? He says that to you and me a thousand different ways. Does God really mind? Does God really care? Oh, I know I shouldn't, but I'm sure God understands. You know, whatever. There's various ways he does that. And so he got them, first of all, to disregard God's clear word. Did God say? And then through the course of the conversation, he appeals to their natural senses. Hey, look at that fruit. Hey, I know what God said, but we're far from that. We haven't talked about God for a long time now. Let's look at this fruit. Does it look bad? Because the scripture says that once they looked at it and saw that it was good, looked okay, looked like the right thing to do, seemed to make sense, they partook of it, and they lost everything, all their authority. They lost everything God had had for them. Now, fast forward a few thousand years. Jesus is in the wilderness. He's coming off a 40-day fast. He is hungry, starving. He is, I don't know how thin, probably lost 40 pounds if he had that much to lose, but totally weak physically. Satan comes at him at his weakest point physically. And what does Satan do? The exact same thing. If you are the son of God, surely God wouldn't mind if, whatever it may be. What's he doing? He's trying to get Jesus to operate in the carnal mind. He's trying to get Jesus to take control of the situation, to do what seems logical, but here's the key. Jesus, unlike Adam and Eve, does not dialogue with the devil. What does Jesus do? He declares the word of God. Every time the devil comes with temptation, Jesus says, it is written. He doesn't even converse with him. Doesn't even get into a conversation with them. He just says, this is what God says. This is absolute. This is the way it is going to be. And we understand the devil could find no weakness to exploit. The real problem with the carnal mind is this. It is gullible. That's the problem with your natural thinking. You are gullible. Gullible. There's a new word. You didn't even catch that in your, natu in your natural mind. Gullible. The natural mind is gullible. What does that mean? It means that it readily accepts what the devil sends to you. Because you see, when the devil comes to you with temptation, he doesn't come to you with a glaring sin and say, do this. Because if you could see it and what the outcome was going to be, it would scare you away. But kind of like the red apple from the witch in Snow, you know, Snow White, it's kind of, it looks great, it seems fine, whatever the case may be, but you don't see the poison in it. 
And he comes to you in a way that seems perfectly logical. The way that you act towards somebody, the way you react, the way you get angry, the way you get offended, the way you lust, the way you're tempted, whatever it may be, a mess of finance, decisions you make, he comes to you in a way that in the natural mind seems perfectly acceptable. And because you're living in the natural mind that is gullible to his temptation, you take it hook, line, and sinker. And then the results unfold. I can pretty much guarantee that every area in your life that is not experienced in freedom and life that Jesus promised it's the result of your carnal mind. It's the result of other decisions you have made according to your own understanding or consequences that are still playing themselves out. And I, I can relate to that as well. Let me close with the scripture. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. Paul writes, We ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce Every kind of good fruit. Please understand this. When the Bible talks about you producing fruit, it's not talking about you just doing things for God, doing ministry, whatever you want to call it. He's talking about every area of your life starting to blossom. Your, your relationships, your finances, your whatever it may be, every area of your life coming to life like a desert that begins to bloom again. He says, all the while you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. I want you to see this cycle. I'm going to bring it up. We're going to finish off with this. I want you to see this cycle. This is a cycle, I believe, of growing our relationship with God. This is how it works. First of all, we know what God wants us to do. Not because we have a dream, not because we heard a voice, not because of something mystical, though that can happen. We know because God has given his word in black and white in the Bible, if we will read it. So we know what God would have us do. That knowledge that we glean gives us understanding in a situation what it is we're supposed to do. Then we begin to live out what it is we understand. And as we live out God's word to us, which is full of living power, the word of God becomes flesh. The word of God becomes evident in our lives, and we see a fruitfulness. And what you discover as you walk with the Lord is he brings you through seasons. And so as you come from one season of fruitfulness to the next season of fruitfulness, what's happening? Not only is God able to bless and move in your life, but you are able to know God better and better. You have a history with him. You have a testimony. And the cycle continues. You see, some of us this morning aren't interested in God's will because we haven't been involved in this cycle. You may have a mental grasp of some concepts, but as James says, you've never humbly accepted the word of God that he plants into your heart. And so it never produces the promises that God promises. And so what happens? You become disinterested. And you create a theology of unbelief. And you live in unbelief. And you perpetrate unbelief. Even as you talk to people, you may mean well. You may even think that you're kind of, you know, taking pressure off them by saying, well, you know, I know that happened years ago, but God doesn't do that today. Or here, this theology, that theology, whatever the case may be. And it just skirts around what God promises because we never want to be stressed. We always want to bring God down to where we're comfortable. You know, I'm not smart, and you know that, but I'm not stupid. And one thing that I've learned in almost 60 years is that the times that I do the things the way God tells me, they always seem to work out the way he said. But the times that I blow off what I know God is saying to me, times when I think I'm smarter than God, times when I feel like I'm an exception to what God is saying, times when I don't want to do what God is saying because he doesn't understand, this is my right, and I hold on to my ways. 
I have always had regrets, even to this day. And some of you here this morning have ignored the word of God for a long time. Dr. Phil asks, how's that working for you? I mean, how's it working for you? I'm going to ask Pastor Kristen to come. Maybe you're here this morning, you've ignored God's word and what he says to you about apathy and unbelief. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're ignoring God's word to you about bitterness and unforgiveness. Or maybe you're ignoring pretty much anything else that obliges you to humbly receive his word. And because of that lifestyle, you have a life that's full of brokenness and full of regrets that result from that disobedience. If you're here this morning and you have brokenness or you have pain, please understand something. That is not a sign of God's judgment of you. It's not a sign that somehow God is angry at you, but it is a sign that you are living by your carnal mind. It is a sign that you are readily accepting what it is the devil sends your way, so cleverly disguised as the right thing to do, and you just go from bad decision to bad decision because you're gullible. You don't have the light of truth in your life. It's time to start changing the way that you think. It's time to start reaching out after the things of the Spirit where everything God says is reality. You know, I can stand here till I'm blue in the faith, face. Or the faith. You caught that, didn't you? You'll forget everything else I said. But I can stand here all morning <coughs> excuse me, and try to convince you that the Word of God is true that you need to have the word of God in you. And if you know what God is saying to you, that you need to start doing it. I, I can talk to you all day about that. But the greatest proof you're ever going to experience is your own personal experience. It's just you choosing today, if you haven't done so already, to say, God, forgive me. I'm just, I, I've disregarded your word so often. I've done my own thing. I've even created a theology that's comfortable. I'm not, I have no doubt that I'm going to heaven. But I've just got this comfortable theology that inevitably says, God, you can come this close, but you can't come any closer. I know what you're saying, but I'm not going to let you have your way because it doesn't make sense. Or what if I fail? Or what if I'm hurt? Or what about my rights? Or what about this is going to stretch me out of my comfort? What if, what if it doesn't happen? And we can live in that grayness of all unbelief all of our lives, and we will never experience the fruitfulness that God wants to bring to the barrenness of our lives and of our relationships. You know, the longer I walk with Jesus and the more I reflect on his word, I find the less struggle I have and the less uncertainty and regrets that I have. Why is that? Not because I'm better than anybody else, but because God's word works. It really does work. It is true. Have you ever thought for a moment how humbled we should be that the God of the universe actually wants to communicate with us? That's what his word is all about. It's a love letter. God is saying, I made you, I love you, I want you to know me. I want to communicate with you every single day. Who in their right mind would say, sorry, God, just, I'm just too busy. Or I just don't believe, or it's not an important part of my life. We're going to just close with a song this morning. I'm just going to give you the opportunity if you're here. And it doesn't mean that your life's falling apart or anything's even wrong this morning if you come. But I want to give you the opportunity to take a few moments by coming to say, Lord, I'm stepping out, and I want to be stepping into your word. Lord, I, I, I want your word to really be a part of my life. In fact, I believe for some of you this morning, if you will come, nobody even has to be around you or pray with you, though I'm going to ask the ministry team to come, that if you will come, God will plant a hunger in your heart for his word. He'll plant a new thirst 
in your heart for the word. He'll plant a discontentment. That's not condemnation, but it's discontentment saying, Lord, if I'm honest, I believe, but I don't believe. Like we shared last week, I know, but I don't know. My knowing and not knowing is the same. It's just a blur. I, I kind of know what I believe, but if I'm, if I'm really honest, I don't see it being fleshed out in my life. I'm not talking to people about Jesus. I'm not leading people to Christ. I'm not believing for miracles. I'm not giving the Lord his way in areas of my heart where there's lovelessness or unforgiveness or pain or, or, or anger or offense, whatever it may be. I'm holding on to those areas that I want where the Lord says, if you would allow my word to be implanted in you, if you would just humble yourself and realize you don't have the answer, it's not going to change under your power. There's nothing you can do. If you will humbly accept my word to you, that word has power to deliver you, to save you, to change you, to turn your life around, to reinvent you if you'll receive the implanted word of God in your heart. He can save you. Will you stand with me this morning? If you need to slip out, you are dismissed. God bless you. I'm going to ask the ministry team to come. If you just come and stand along the front, and if you want someone to pray with you, they will do that. If you just want to say to them, you know what, I have nothing to share, but there's something in my heart. I just want you to agree with me in prayer. Some of the stuff the pastor's talking about, I want you to agree with me, I want you to pray with me, that that gets nailed down this morning. If that's your heart's desire, they'll pray with you. Or if you just want to come and kneel at the altar or kneel at the front pew just to get alone from the noise of the crowd for a moment and do business with God and say, Lord, today, 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 Lord, your will be done, your kingdom come. Lord, I open my heart to your word. Or maybe you know the word God has spoken to you and you need to make that decision to submit to it and say, you know what, maybe it's been years, but today it stops. Today the cycle stops, the struggle stops. Today, I am saying, Lord, I know what you've been saying to me, and I say yes. I don't understand it, don't know how it's going to happen, but I know what you're saying to me, and I say yes. And if that's your heart's desire this morning, I want to invite you to come. The Lord will meet you. He'll release the power of his word. He will bring freedom to you. And last but not least, if you don't know Jesus, I want to invite you to come and just find one of these people and just say, I don't know Jesus. I feel his presence this morning. What the pastor said rings true to my heart. I want to know God. I want to know God. They will pray with you. They will show you how to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. And so I invite you to come. So as we worship the Lord, if you want to receive ministry, find somebody. If you want to be undisturbed, just stand out there. Kneel to a pew, whatever it may be. That can we take a moment to do business with the Lord. Amen. When the word of God comes alive in you, you have all you need to send the enemy running. The power of God at work in your life. Amen. God bless you. God bless you. Lord willing to see you tonight. Have a wonderful week in the Lord, but please don't rush off if you don't have to. Take a few moments to do business with God and with the Holy Spirit. Let things begin to change today by the power of His Word.